we all go through different seasons of our life. And in marriage, you know, there's the dating, the courtship, and you get together, you in love, and then you have kids, and then the love fades, and you build your career, and you raise your kids, and then they leave home, and then you're in the empty nest, like me and my wife are. Some of you have raised your grandchildren. Some of you are facing serious illness and, and death or have lost your spouse. And there's this, you know, spring, summer, fall, and winter of our lives and our marriages. We all go through it. I don't know what season you're in. And then we all face challenges. Um, we've all been facing the economy. Uh, I don't watch the news. I don't watch anything political on TV. I got friends that tell me what I need to know. And if a hurricane is coming or if we have been bombed or if a war is imminent or a hurricane. But otherwise, I got, I got more than I can deal with at the office and at my house. Um, I just can't take it. I mean, I just can't take it. Maybe some people can watch the news and can listen to all that, but I, I just can't. I actually heard something on K-Love not too long ago that they were actually, had a term for it, I forget what the term was, that people were being traumatized by listening to the news because there's just so much stuff out there. And we got our economies, some of you are unemployed, some of you are struggling financially, uh, you got illnesses, uh, family problems, marital problems, problems with your children, with your in-laws, um, some addictions, some of you have gone through the flood. And I don't know what challenge you're facing or what season of life you're in, but this I know. The constant throughout it all is that what you need more than anything else is love and connection. And while I may not be able to help you rebuild your house, I can help you keep your home intact if you listen to what I tell you today and Wednesday. And what I want you to what I want to give you today and what I want to share with you today is what I've been learning for the last three years that's helping couples more than anything I've ever given them and has helped me in my marriage, and I hope that it helps you. Even if you're not married, these principles apply throughout all relationships. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, I thank you for this time together. Apparently, you ordained it. And I don't know where these people are and what they need, but I pray that you would speak through me. Help me to slow my thought process down enough to hear your voice, to lead me in whatever direction you want me to go, that I might be your servant and help them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you have your way, that you speak through me to encourage them, to bless them, to help them wherever they are, whatever they need. In Jesus' name, amen. So the very first point I want to make is that we were created to connect. And in order to speak on that, I want to show you a little video that was made a long time ago, but it's, it's really powerful. It kind of speaks for itself. So the good is the connection. The bad is losing the connection, but being able to get it back. And the ugly, not being able to get back to being connected. In response to the loss of connection, what did the baby do? The first thing she did was she smiled, she pointed, tried to play patty cake, 
tried to get the mother's attention. When that didn't work, she reached with her arms, she screeched, cried. She demanded the mother's attention. And then finally turned away when it was too much and she couldn't take it anymore. She turned away, which is she disengaged. Just remember that. She, when she couldn't get the attention, she tried demanding it. And when that didn't work, she disengaged. She turned away. Our nervous systems, and you can tell it from watching this little baby, were designed to be captured by another nervous system. There's actually a part of the brain that doesn't develop unless it has another person that tunes in to it and reflects back to it what feelings are going on or communicates with it. If, if a person doesn't have a parent that knows how to tune in to them, they don't develop the way they're supposed to. They don't develop physiologically in their brain. Emotionally, they have problems. I mean, some of you have heard of attachment disorders when when kids don't bond properly with their parents, they have all these problems. And part of it is not just a soul thing. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's a biological thing. The brain needs that connection or else it doesn't, it doesn't work right. And psychologically we need it or we don't work right. What about marriage? This doesn't end in infancy. Even as adults, we need to feel connected and need a secure attachment. Just like this baby needed to develop and needs to develop a secure attachment with a parent in order to function well and to develop the way they're supposed to, we need, as adults, a secure attachment. That can be God, but it also, it's our spouse. It can be a parent. It can be another person. When it's lost, we react in much the same way, only in more sophisticated versions. Some of us still do all the things that that baby did. We play, try to play patty take. We try to get our spouse's attention. When they don't pay attention, we cry, we mope, we get on our iPhone, we go over to the other side of the room. We, we, you know, we, we demand, and when that doesn't work, we disengage or we withdraw. Some of us wish we could get the amount of attention that our pets get. Some of you wives wish you could get the amount of attention that your husband gives to his fishing reel or his motor in the, in the garage. Some of you wish you could get your belly scratched a few times, just like that puppy dog that's in the middle of the bed. Or wish you could get the hugs that your little kids get that seem have taken over your life. We all need that loving connection. And when we don't get it, we demand and we disengage. The problem is it's not often understood as a reaction to the loss of loving connection or an attempt to reconnect. A loving marriage was designed by God to be a covenant relationship. We all know this. But it's also a special kind of an emotional bond or a built-in it's, it's an answer to a built-in need for a safe haven and a secure base. After creating the first human being, as recorded in Genesis 2.18, God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. 
I will create a helper suitable for him. Some translations say helpmate. And, you know, we think that God created the man and then he created the woman as the helpmate. When you look up that word helpmate, it's two words. It's two Hebrew words, azer, E-Z-E-R, connecto, K-I-N-E-G-D-O. It's better translated sustainer companion. And when you look up the word sustainer, it's, that word is only used 20 times in the Old Testament. And every single time it's used, except this one, 19 out of the 20 times, it's used to describe the character of God that comes on the scene to save man from peril, that if God don't show up to save him, he's, he perishes. And this one time it's used to describe the creature that was created by God to help man to go through life, to sustain him, to be a companion. Not like hamburger helper or not like some little subservient creature that's going to help man do what man needs to do. And I know that because if you go back in Genesis chapter 1, where it says God created man in his own image, the word there for man is not man, it's mankind. It's humans. God created humans in his own image. Then it goes on to say male and female, he created them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and go rule and subdue the earth. Not just to the man. He created us, and my point is, we need each other. It doesn't mean you need to get married, but we need each other. We are better together, just like the series, just like Brother Todd said. Consider what Jesus said about what is most important in life. Typically referred to the two great commandments, it also reveals our two greatest needs. In Mark chapter 12, verse 29 through 31, it goes, one of the scribes asked him, what commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is our greatest need? We're supposed to love God and love others as we love ourselves, but it also means that what we need most is the love of God and the love of others. See, we don't often teach what we need. We teach what we're supposed to do. Here it says love God and love others. If that's the commandment, it means that we also need the love of God and the love of others. If we're supposed to love others, we're an other to somebody else, which means they're supposed to love us. If it says, wives, respect your husband, it means the husband needs respect. If it says, husbands, love your wives, it means the wife needs love. If it says, encourage one another, it means we need encouragement. So we need love. We can't live without it. Our soul, which is referred to in the Bible as our heart, needs love just like our physical heart needs blood. Now, there are different types of blood. And when you have AB or A positive or A negative, you need that type of blood. 
it works that way with our soul too. There's men and women. We, we do love different. We do feelings different. There's different temperaments. You know, there's melancholies, cholerics, phlegmatics, supines, and I'm forgetting one, uh, sanguines. We all need love and express it differently, but we all need it. Every single person in here needs love and connection. If, if you have a problem giving it or receiving it, I can assure you that it was probably something that happened to you that makes you that way. Something has happened along, the, on, along your life, either as a child or you had some bad relationships or some bad experiences, or there's something wrong with your brain that makes it such that you can't do it or receive it. Because we all need it. We were wired that way. Neuroscience on love has proven what we already know as Christians, that being connected, having a loving relationship is the best antidote to stress. Did you know that having a loving relationship or a secure attachment with someone actually increases dopamine, which enhances attention and pleasure? It increases serotonin, which reduces fear and stress. It increases oxytocin, which is called the love hormone or the cuddle hormone, which makes you more trusting of others, makes you want to draw near and be close to one another. And it reduces stress hormones such as epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol. Many of the problems that we have with anxiety and depression are associated with these chemicals that get out of whack in our brain, and that's why people prescribe antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications to correct some of these things. The best antidote to these things or the best medicine for it is a loving connection with God and with others. Emotional connection with a loved one, we all know this, is also a potent source of resilience and strength. It's a common experience, isn't it, that when you feel loving connected with someone or you feel like someone loves you or believes in you that you can do anything? It's just like a little kid that goes to a park, a toddler with its mother, and they're kind of timid. They go there and they sit on the, uh, on, the, on the bench and the mother introduces the child to the play equipment and all of the different things and there's some other kids playing and at first the child might be a little bit timid, but as, as, as the mother shows the way, the child begins to venture out and every now and then the child will come back and look to see that his mother's still there or her mother's still there and maybe go back to the mother and then they will go venture out again and they'll go a little bit further and maybe climb a little bit higher. And as long as they know that that mother's there, as long as they have that secure attachment or that their dad is there watching over them, that they can come back to that secure place of love and connection, they will go venture out and explore and, and do all kinds of things. We're no different. As long as we know that we have a secure attachment, a loving connection, we will go out and explore and develop and live fully alive. When we don't feel that loving connection or that secure attachment, when you feel rejected, unloved, alone, disconnected, you're going to be more depressed, more anxious, more fearful, more insecure, more cautious, more rebellious, more self-destructive, and you'll develop an attitude, why bother? That's why you need to not only come to church, but you need to be in a group of people so you can touch and feel and connect with people. It's not enough just to come here. We need each other. 
Emotional isolation is also dangerous. Suffering in this life is a given. And it's difficult. Many of us are suffering. Suffering alone is intolerable. The worst part is the, is, isn't the pain, but it's the lack of response. It's the baby crying without being picked up. Some of y'all were getting a bit nervous in here. I could feel it. It's like y'all were getting like upset that this baby wasn't being attended to. And this is just a little video. How much more is it true when it's you? It's no wonder we medicate ourselves with so many things. It's no wonder we get caught up in so many addictions. Because the truth of it is, a lot of the crazy stuff that we do, almost all of it, Thomas Aquinas said it best, it's sin is following sin, all sin is rooted in a legitimate God-given desire. That what we really need is a loving connection with God and with others. And when we don't get it, we either try demanding it from people. When that doesn't work, we, we disengage, we withdraw. And when that doesn't work, we displace it. We go try to medicate ourselves. We go try to find some substitute to make us feel good or to make us not feel the pain that we feel from not having the loving connection, which is what we need in the first place. Our greatest, if our greatest need is love, let's talk a little bit about what love looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous, which means actually that it's not envious or covetousness. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It's humble. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. In other words, it's unselfish. It is not provoked. It's self-controlled. It does not take into account a wrong suffer. It's forgiving. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It's truthful. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So it's persevering and it's optimistic. In a practical sense, when you love, you meet needs. You meet the need for attention, affection, affirmation, acceptance, significance, security, and support, which I believe are the seven core needs. In an even more basic sense, what do we all need? To be seen, to be heard, and to be cared about. Every single person on the planet whether they look like they do or they don't. They need to be seen, to be heard, and to be cared about. The problem comes when we don't get these things. I believe most of, if not all, the problems in marriages and relationships arise when our needs are not met. It's ultimately what all of our fights and and arguments about. And uh, before discussing it further and getting to the main point of this message, I want to show you a little video clip. Talks about what some of the things we fight about are. So, according to internationally acclaimed expert on marriage, the go-to guy for everyone, kind of like George Barner in the Christian community, John Godman's research tells us that 69% of the issues we fight about are perpetual and are never resolved throughout the relationship. 
Let me read that again. This is for all of you who go to counseling or go to help for your marriage. This is what the research shows. 69% of the issues you're fighting about are perpetual and they're never going to be resolved throughout the course of your marriage. Chances are what you're fighting over today, you're going to be annoyed with 20 years from now. When we were trying to decide how much wall to cut out of the rooms that were damaged, me and Michelle were arguing over it. We were fussing and fighting and spewing out our normal things. And then she started demanding and turning up the heat. And eventually, when I couldn't take it, I disengaged and went in the other room and tuned her out, like I always do. That's our pattern for 32 years. We're better at it now, but stress brings out the best and the worst of you. There's so much emphasis on fixing problems, and yet psychological research reveals advice is only 5 to 10% effective 5 to 10% of the time. The majority of issues cannot be fixed. It's the process of communication that matters. The point isn't to pay attention to the issues, but to instead focus on the emotional bond. It's essential to shift the level of communication from the surface topics and tune into our emotional connection. Deep down, we all want to trust that if we need our partner, he or she will be there for us. In the video, they started asking at the end, what are we, what are we fight? why are we fighting about this? The, another way of saying it is, what are we really fighting about? We're fighting about, if I'm saying that, you know, 69% of the stuff you argue and fight about is never going to be resolved, then what's the hope? That if advice is only effective 5 to 10% of the time, I mean, that doesn't leave a whole lot of hope. But what I've learned and what I'm learning more and more as I get older is it's not about resolving all that stuff. Michelle and I still are not in agreement on what we should have done, how we should have done it, or what we're doing now. What's different is that we don't get so focused on that anymore that we lose sight of what's really important, which is that we're in this together. We may not agree on everything, but how do we stay connected? How do we continue to love one another in the midst of this chaos or this world that we live in? How do we stay in love in the midst of the war around us? How do we pull together and try to face this stress together and be in it together rather than fighting at each other. That's the trick. That's the thing you got to focus on. And that's the thing I'm going to show you how to deal with in the next 10 minutes. There's this thing called, I call it the dance of disconnection, which is what I've kind of alluded to already. When we are not seen, heard, and cared about, when we lose our connection to the one we love, we will typically do one of two things. One is we will fight. These are, these are reactions to separation distress, if you want to call it. One is to fight. The other one is flight. The one who fights turns up the emotional heat. They will push, 
poke, pro, uh, demand, worry, fret, protest, confront, try to fix, they will pursue. The one on the other side, the flight, will turn off the emotional heat. They try to deny, dismiss, disengage, minimize, numb out, avoid, shut down, let the storm pass, withdraw. For our purposes, I want you to keep this as the pursuer and the withdrawer. One pursues, fights, the other one disengages, they withdraw. The problem is not that we do this, that some of us turn up the heat or turn down the heat. The problem is that we, that if we do it over and over again, this chronic turning up or off of emotions will create a negative cycle or dance that will predictably spiral into disconnection, danger, and deprivation. The problem is not the fight or flight. They can both be necessary and adaptive. It's when these responses become habitual and chronic that they become really problematic. The result is usually one of three scenarios, which some refer to as cycles or dances. Based on thousands of hours of research done by a woman named Sue Johnson, she came up with and identified three typical dances. And I promise you, if you watched a thousand hours of couples arguing, you would see the same thing. You may call it different things, but you would see the same thing. One dance she calls find the bad guy, which is mutual attack. This is usually what you see with younger couples where they're going at each other, or it's a pursuer and a defensive withdrawer. A pursuer who's criticizing, demanding, and a withdrawer who's defending themselves or disengaging. And then the second dance is freeze and flee. That's where you have mutual withdrawal, where you have both people shutting down. Or this can be like where you have a withdrawer and a burnt-out pursuer, a one that's pursued and demanded and, and protested for years and years and years, and they've just got tired of it, and they're burnt out, and they've just now withdrawn. Or what you see more frequently is some variation of what she calls the protest polka, which is one demands, the other one withdraws, one criticizes, the other one defends, or what I'm going to call them pursue, withdraw. So I want to show you some pictures of these three stances. First of all, the first dance, find the bad guy. This is what it might look like, attack, attack. It's like pointing the finger at each other. It's the blame game, you know, the thing that started in the Garden of Eden where they lost their connection to God and one another. They did something wrong. God comes and finds Adam. Adam, what did you do? And he says, that woman you gave me, Lord. And says, Eve, what did you do? And she said, the devil made me do it. The blame game started way back in the Garden of Eden. We're pointing the finger, the need to be right. We're just arguing and fussing, both saying what we want to say, and neither one of us listening to the other one. Then there's freeze and flee. This is mutual withdrawal, where both people are shutting down, or after years, the pursuer gets so burnt out of trying to get the withdrawer to engage that they withdraw too. And now you got both people shutting down, not talking. You know that 
one uh, of them in the bed together with their backs to one another. That's like one of the worst feelings in the world. You ever been in an argument like that that goes on for days? You know, you, you, uh, you know, you're just so tired of it. You stick your toe over there just to see if they'll. You put your, you touch them with your hand. They slap it off. We used to have a bed that was so old. The one we financed for seven years when we got married. Um, finally got a good mattress, but it, it, it was just sagged in the middle because it was so old called it the reconciliation bed. We'd both try to get over to our sides, but we'd keep rolling back down to touch each other. We'd both be clinging on to the side of the mountain rather than come together. Then you got the protest polka. The first pictures you'll see, this is uh, where you have the wife as the pursuer and the husband as the withdrawer. This is what it looks like. You can just look at these pictures. Which of, you know, I'm not going to tell you to say this out loud, but if, if you're a woman pursuer, if you're the woman and you are the one that is always protesting, always demanding, criticizing, trying to fight for things to be right, trying to get the other person to talk, this is you and this is your husband if he's the withdrawer. The withdrawer is the the one that stonewalls, that doesn't talk, doesn't want to hear it, tunes you out. You know, the guy's got his fingers in his ears. Maybe this guy feels like the, the you know, like the guy that's having his tie pulled. You're going to do what I say. This is, the, this is the relationship where the wife feels like the mother and she feels like her husband's the little boy that she's got to manage all the time. The, you know, the critical parent and the rebellious teenager. This is the woman that says, I don't have four children, Dully. I have five. And this is the husband. You see that picture on the far left of you, or this side over here? The guy, it's like he's just so tired of hearing it. You know, the guy is just tuned out. You know, Jason Bourne with the hairdo, you know, up here. Can you relate to any of these pictures? And then the next set of pictures is the same protest polka. This is the pursue withdrawer, but this is where you have the husband as the pursuer. And if you look real carefully, you can see there's two kind of guys here. There's the guy that's begging for his wife's attention, pleading. It looks like the, the guy that's too needy. You know, and then there's the angry kind of abusive guy where he's yelling and screaming at his wife. They're both version, same version, same thing, same thing. The guy here is trying to get his wife to talk, to get his wife to come forward, and she's shutting down. She's pulling away. She's giving him the cold shoulder. So I put those pictures up there for you to identify with. It's not that the importance here is not to label yourself. The importance here, what I'm, you know, there can be variations of this. There can be degrees of all of these. And this is just to help you to identify your style, your pattern, because if you can identify your pattern, you have hope of changing it. And the new lens that I want you to look at your relationship with is this, that whatever 
cycle, whatever dance you can identify with. The dance cycle is each partner's way of managing the disconnection between them while searching for closeness. This has revolutionized the way that I look at my own marriage, the way that I look at couples, and the way that I work with couples. That whatever this is that we're doing, this turning up the heat, the pursuer, criticizing, demanding, trying to fix the problem, you know, trying to get the other person to do something, or the withdrawer who disengages, who just numbs out, who goes away, who, who's trying to let the storm pass, that whether you're pursuing or demanding or you're withdrawing or disengaging, it's all about trying to connect or regain your connection or to deal with the pain of disconnection. The problem is we don't understand this. We don't believe it. We don't see it as that. It would make a huge difference if you did. We interpret the behavior and react accordingly. So check out this little grid. Put up the last slide. And there's some sermon notes out there. If you, don't have, if you can't see it on the screen, I apologize. But this is, this is the way that it works in a typical protest polka. The pursuer, let's just say she's the wife and the withdrawer is the husband. The pursuer criticizes, attacks, and blames. That's what it looks like on the outside. The withdrawer shuts down, avoids, and hides. The perception of the pursuer, of the withdrawer, is that he's selfish and he doesn't care. The perception of the withdrawer, of the pursuer, is she's too needy and demanding. The feelings of the pursuer that you can see on the surface is she's very anxious, maybe sometimes gets angry or seems desperate. The feelings that you see on the surface of the withdrawer is that he's frustrated and numb. That's all what you see on the surface. But what's really going on with both people lies below the surface. You can't see it. Underneath the pursuer feels hurt, unworthy, and abandoned. Underneath the withdrawer feels inadequate and rejected. It's like they can't get it right. It's never enough. They don't know what to do. The core need of the pursuer is to feel significant and secure, to feel valued, and to feel safe and love and connection, the core need of the withdrawer is to be accepted and affirmed, to feel that they're accepted for who they are and to feel like they're good enough, to feel like they're okay, that they're doing a good job, that they're getting it right. So what happens is a stress comes, you lose your connection, and the pursuer, in order to get it back, turns up the heat. The withdrawer actually feels like this is making it worse, so they try to turn down the heat. The more they turn down the heat, the more they withdraw, the more the pursuer feels abandoned and desperate, the more louder they get. The louder they get, the more the withdrawer gets like they don't know what to do, and they feel like nothing they can say is going to 
make it better. They've tried talking before and they try talking and it gets worse. So they stop talking and they shut down. They want to let the storm pass. But when they shut down, the pursuer feels like, oh my God, they're, they're, they're leaving me and this is getting worse now. It's like they, if they would just talk to me. So they try, they beat against the door. You know, and then the, the withdrawer tries to leave the house. And the pursuer gets nervous and feels even more abandoned and goes and tries to keep him from leaving the house. And it goes on and on and on. But the truth of it is, the pursuer is just, they're fighting. They might be yelling and screaming and anxious and controlling and criticizing. But the truth of it is, they're just trying to reconnect. They're, they're feeling like they've lost their connection and they're trying to get it back. The withdrawer is just trying to manage the pain of the disconnection. They're, they're withdrawing not because they don't care, not because they're selfish, because they don't know what to do. Because every time they, they try to talk about it, it gets worse. And the worse it gets, the more disconnected they feel, so they withdraw. They shut down. When the truth of it is, both of them are reacting to the loss of connection. They're just trying to survive. So I have a little exercise for you when you go out there and it's to dissect your dance and you fill in the blanks. It goes like this. When my spouse is on her phone messing around on her Facebook, I often react by getting angry and pouting. I do this with the hope that she'll see that I'm upset, stop her Facebook and pay attention to me. Now, which of you ladies, if your husband was pouting and brooding and depressed, would rather talk to him than your girlfriend on Facebook? Or to, you know, it's like what I realize is the more I get like that, I realize the more that I, I get depressed and get angry and pout, the more she wants to be on her Facebook, the more she wants to be on her phone, the less she wants to be with me. I think she wants to do that more than me. And then we're more cut off from each other. The question is, what can we do when this cycle starts to help break the cycle, the pattern? Because you see, when I work with couples and I'm trying to repair a relationship or they've become disconnected or drawn apart, the four steps to repairing is this. Number one is recognize the cycle is the enemy and unite against fighting the cycle rather than each other. The partner's not the enemy. The cycle is the enemy, or the enemy is the enemy that's using the cycle to pull you apart. And then the withdrawer has to re-engage. The pursuer has to soften, and you have to learn how to replace reactive with more vulnerable, deeper conversations. So I got a little one-and-a-half-minute video clip, and we're done. So look, what is it we're trying to get anyway? All of these pictures were people talking to people on their phones. So they were, in essence, disconnecting in order to connect. Meanwhile, losing the connection with the people that they're with. What is it that we all crave the most? It's love and connection. We all need it, but are we getting it? Are we really getting more of it through Facebook, texting, and social media? You can get some of that on Facebook, but is it really the same as a real live relationship? Does 400 friends on Facebook meet your need for human loving connection the same as the person in front of you talking to you and touching you? It can meet some of your need, but it's not the same as a real live relationship. 
That's what we were made for. Many of us have settled for substitutes and counterfeits. And the truth of it is we often end up disconnecting in an attempt to connect or to deal with the pain of being disconnected. So got some suggestions for you. Instead of texting them, call them. Or text them and say, call me. Don't have this big conversation on text. Not with me. I won't do it. Instead of emailing them, try writing a handwritten note. You remember those? Or walk over to their office and invite them or tell them what you want to tell them. Instead of getting on Facebook, why don't you call or visit somebody? Instead of the TV or the computer, spend time with someone in your life or in your, in your household or one of your friends or your family. Go visit somebody. Instead of sending your love via technology, why don't you try sitting, talking to someone, and giving someone a hug? Don't settle for the counterfeits or the substitutes. Go after the real thing. Amen. <laughs>